The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Recently, I've been seeing a lot of movies and TV shows that will put a little splice of the ending scene at the beginning of the movie, and then they'll come back to the beginning and start from there and show you how that led up to that point. And so... um, I want to do that this morning. I want you to go to Acts chapter 14, verse 27. We're going to look at the ending first and then come back to Acts 14, 1 in a few moments. So turn to Acts chapter 14, verse 27. And Acts 13 and 14 comprises Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. And so I want you to see a map of this journey so you see where these places are actually located. Now, I don't have a very steady hand here, um, which is why I'm a pastor and not a sniper. Um, so here's... Uh, where it began in Antioch, and then they go from Antioch over to Salamis, and then Paphos, and then to Perga, and then to another Antioch, yes, two Antiochs, because the Bible's not confusing enough, and then they go from Antioch in Pisidia, to Iconium, then on to Lystra, then to Derbe, and then back the way they came, back to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch of Pisidia, then Atalia, and then back to Antioch, which is in Syria. So that's sort of a snapshot of their their first missionary journey. And I want you to see um, in Acts 14, verse 27, a really important passage here. Look at verse 27. It says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So I want you to hang on to that last phrase, how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So they go back to Antioch and they gather the church together. And they begin to tell their story. And I think this last phrase, how God opened up a door to the Gentiles, I think is so important because basically it is the explanation for why you and I are here on a Sunday morning in 2015. You are sitting in your seat this morning because of verse 27. This church is here because of verse 27. I want to show you another map. This is a world map. And I want you to see how just simply miraculous I think it is what's happened with Christianity. If I were to ask you the question, where is the center of, say, Buddhism? You would say it's still pretty much where it began. Now, of course, it has spread, but we'd say the center of, a, of Buddhism is, is about where it began, somewhere in the Far East. We'd also say the center of Hinduism is most likely still India. We would say that the center of Islam isn't about the the place where it began in the Middle East. Now, of course, it has spread over the world, but the center of Islam is still pretty much the same. Okay, where is the center of Judaism? Well, it's in Israel, or maybe New York City, or maybe South Florida, right? But we would say that for most world religions... Where they began, that's still pretty much the center of where they are now. But this is not the case with Christianity. In the first century, Antioch, was, or Jerusalem, was the start of the church. Then it moved to Antioch. Then it moved to Rome. Then Western Europe. Then to the New World. The center of the church kept on shifting and changing throughout world history. In fact, if I were to ask you the question this morning, so today, where is the center of Christianity? Where is the center of Christianity? Many of you might say 
Well, of course, it's Texas. <laughs> or it's the Bible Belt, at least. We would say that the, the span of the U.S. that stretches from the Carolinas over to Texas, that's called the Bible, also known as the Southeastern Football Conference. And so we would say that is probably the Bible Belt. And some might say this, but that is actually changing as we become more and more post-Christian in our culture today. So some might say that, but if you were to really be honest, where is the church growing and flourishing like never before? Surprisingly enough, it's actually Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The church is exploding in these parts of the world, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, just below the Sahara Desert. There were only 9 million Christians in that part of the world in 1910. Now there are 516 million Christians in 2010 in that part of the world. The church is growing exponentially in parts of the world that are not the Bible Belt. And here's why I say all of this. That you and I are here on a Sunday morning in 2015 is a virtual miracle. That at one time, the Bible Belt was considered to be the center of Christianity. It has moved across the globe is a virtual miracle. And so I I say this this morning because if you're a skeptic, if you don't believe this stuff is true, you have to at least admit that all of this is pretty miraculous In fact, you might even say it it seems like there's been a God at work. It seems like there's been a Holy Spirit at work that's been behind all of this. Because I don't know how else you explain the center of Christianity moving so many times throughout history to where it's just all over the world. It's all over the world. And so I want to take you back now to um, Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Look at Acts 14, verse 1. It says, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, don't miss this. When they enter into Iconium, what's the first place they go? They go to the synagogue. Now, this is important because what happened back in Acts chapter 13? The Jews rejected them. In 13, it says, they shook the dust off their feet toward the Jews and said, we're going to the Gentiles. But when they go into Iconium, the first place they go, right back into the Jewish synagogue. This is significant because this shows us that God's not giving up on his people. He's not giving up on the Jews. Paul's not giving up on the Jews. So God does not give up his pursuit of his people, the Jews. But in spite of their persistence in going to the Jews, Paul and Barnabas still encounter opposition from the Jews. And so instead of leaving, watch what they do in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, so they remained for a long time. So it says, they have opposition. Then it says in verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so in chapter 13, we see they leave because of opposition. In chapter 14, they stay because of opposition. And in 14, it seems like they're thinking, you know, we've got some more work to do here. We've got some more work to do in spite of 
this opposition. And so the only explanation I can give you for that is you can't, you can't approach Acts in a prescriptive kind of way. You can't look at Acts and say, okay, if somebody rejects you, you should walk away. Or if someone, um, because if you do that, you're going to be a schizophrenic. You'll be doing one thing in one chapter and something different in another chapter. And so what they do here, we, we can't explain why they make these decisions except for the fact that God's leading them. The Holy Spirit's at work and God is working through them and he's leading them in what they're supposed to do here. And I want you to watch in verse 3 and 4. <clears throat> because some people here have already rejected the gospel. They've already rejected the message of Christ. And so, but what, what, what does Paul keep doing? He keeps on preaching. And not only that, but we see God send miracles. So God says, okay, you don't believe? Miracle. And of course, still some choose not to believe even after the miracle. So what does this show us? This shows us that you and I worship a God who never stops pursuing people. Even those that say, nope, I don't believe, God says, okay, miracle. He's always pursuing people. In fact, you, if you're a believer this morning, you are only a Christian because God didn't stop pursuing you. Some, somebody else in your life didn't stop pursuing you. This is the only reason why we are even believers, because we worship a God who is arguing for himself. He's trying to persuade people, no, look at me, look at my revelation. And even those that have rejected him, he says, okay, miracle. Trying to reveal himself, trying to get them to buy in, trying to help them see that he is true, that he is truly God, Yahweh. Look down at verse it says when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles by Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country and there they continued to preach the gospel so now an attempt is being made on their life so these rulers have upped the ante they have made an attempt on their life made a plot to mistreat them and stone them. And in verse 7, what do they do in the next town? They keep on preaching the gospel. Again, there's no explanation. Sometimes they stay, sometimes they go. The Holy Spirit leads them as they go on their journey. But they come to a place where people are going to pick up rocks and throw them at them and try to kill them. I mean, if that happened to us, like, wouldn't you be a little gun-shy the next town, Right? But the first thing they do when they get there is they're still preaching gospel. They continue preaching the gospel as they go throughout their journey. And the main point I want you to see here in this passage is that God uses opposition to the gospel to create opportunity for the gospel. God uses their suffering and their opposition to actually propel the gospel forward. It's not like suffering is just they got to put up with it. It's actually the mechanism that God uses throughout Acts to propel it forward. It's like suffering is their passport, not just an inconvenience. And so God uses opposition to the gospel to create opportunity for the gospel. And you're going to see all throughout the book of Acts that Paul and Barnabas and others maintain a gospel posture. And this should be our posture as well. Because throughout history, people have persecuted the church 
hoping it would be like water to fire. But instead, persecution is more like gasoline. The more they try to stop it, the more it spreads. The more persecution happens, the more the gospel goes forward. Look with me in verse 8. It says, Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and he began walking. So they go into Lystra. Paul sees a man crippled since birth. He heals the man. Now watch in uh, verse 11 their reaction to this. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now let's compare these reactions. Back in Iconium, God does a miracle, but no one's impressed. In Lystra, there's a miracle, and the people are like, the gods have come down. God's come down to see us. And I don't know about you, but um, they think Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. The Greeks worshipped many gods. They had a pantheon of gods. They had many gods. They were polytheistic in their, in their worship. And I don't know about you, but I've been in ministry for 20 years. No one's ever mistaken me for a Greek god. Now, I do know someone who has, though. Um, if... <laughs> So our goal is to use that picture at least once every time he's out of town. So just <laughs> prepare yourself for that. Let's go to the next slide. I don't want to make the guys in here jealous, so let's go to the next slide. Um, so they think Paul is Hermes. They think Barnabas is Zeus. And not only does the crowd want to worship them, but the priest of Zeus wants in on the action. And so this is a picture here of Hermes and Zeus. Um, anybody here send their um, significant other flowers for Valentine's Day? Um, the FTD logo is actually Hermes. And then Zeus looks like a cartoon version of Kenny Rogers. <laughs> so this is Zeus and Hermes, and they think Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. And so I need you to know that there's a story behind this story. And here's what happened. In there, that area that they were in, Asia Minor, there's a story behind the story. So they had an ancient legend. Their ancient legend said this, that Zeus and Hermes once came to earth as men to that area, and no one knew who they were, so they're knocking on a thousand doors. And everybody rejected them, except for this one elderly couple. This one couple took them in, showed them hospitality, and they awarded that couple by making them a priest and a priestess in their religion. Then as a result, to punish everyone else, Zeus and Hermes wiped out the rest of the region with a big flood. And so that's the backstory of what happens here. And so these people, the Lystrans, they see one miracle and they're like, the gods have come down, let's, let's worship them because they're afraid they're going to miss the boat again. They're afraid they're going to get punished again. But I want you to see this in their religion. In their religion, they have worship, they have the wrath and judgment of the gods, they even have a flood. They have sacrifice. 
they even have the gods coming down in the flesh. Does this sound familiar? You know, I have a relative, an aunt who lives in Houston, my my mom's um, sister, and she is not a believer. And she has said to me things like, you know, I believe that Christianity is just a combination, an amalgamation of lots of world religions, and, and Christianity has just borrowed from other religions and sort of put those things into their religion. And the whole thing is just a made-up thing, and so we don't really know what's true, what's real. And at first glance, you might say, well, it sounds like she has a point. Because there are some similarities, right? There are some similar themes. But I want to put forth to you this morning, is it possible there are similarities because God has placed those desires within us. And what you see happen is in other world religions, those desires that we all have come out, but they come out in incomplete ways. They come out in some false ways. And so every person on the earth has a desire for worship. At least some awareness of sin, some awareness of right and wrong, some understanding of justice, a need for sacrifice. If you go across the globe, you will see any world religion has some kind of sacrificial system. Some idea that something's wrong with us, and I've got to make something right between us and God or us and the gods. And what we see in Christianity is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. Everything that I just described to you is fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He's the one to be worshipped. He's the answer to our sin. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the great high priest. These people think the gods have come down, but the good news is that Jesus Christ already has. Jesus Christ already has entered into our reality, and he is the ultimate and the most full, the truest answer to the desires that we see that are similarly put in every world religion. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of those desires. Look at verse 14 with me. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also were men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their, in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness." For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Paul and Barnabas, when they're, when they're about to get worship, they rush in to, <clears throat> to reason with them. <clears throat> and it says they tore their clothes. Not sure why they did that, but they tore their clothes in protest this worship. I want to spend some time with you on verses 15 to 18 because this is Paul's first sermon to those that don't have really any knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And so I want to just give you some some ideas that come from this passage on sharing the gospel with people that are like the audience that Paul's witnessing to, the Lystrans, who really have no previous knowledge of who God is. 
have no previous knowledge of the Bible. And there's some profound things, I think, in this passage. And so the first thing I want you to know is that you've got to start with where people are. You've got to start with where people are. Um, If you look at Paul's sermon in Acts 13, um, he's talking to Gentiles that are God-fearers, but also Jews. So where does he start with his sermon? He starts with the Law and the Prophets. Then he shows how Christ is the fulfillment of those things. But where does he start in this passage? People that have no clue who God is, they worship Zeus and Hermes. He starts with, there's one God. There's one God. That God is the creator God. That God created everything. And so, sharing the gospel with someone that has a background in Bible, a background in these ideas, is going to look different than someone who has no knowledge of these things whatsoever. If you were to call up our, uh, our friend Stephen Chung, who's in New York City now, he used to be on the stage preaching quite a bit. If you asked him, are your conversations a little bit different in New York City versus Central Texas? I think he might say yes, depending on someone's background. Now, I am not at all saying that you water down the gospel. I'm saying your starting point might be different, but the ending point is the same. The ending point is Jesus on the cross. The starting point, though, might be different based on who you're speaking to. And so you have to understand, you've got to start where people are. The second point is we've got to help people see their their idolatry. Now, I'm not at all saying you walk into work tomorrow and you're like, repent, idolaters. I'm not saying you start that way. But we've got to help people understand their idolatry. And I think that people are more aware of their idolatry than we think they are. If you were to ask people a question like this, where do you find yourself looking for fulfillment in your life? And is it working? If you ask someone a question like, what are some things that control you? What are some things that you feel enslaved to or controlled by? I can guarantee you most are going to have a list. I can tell you several things that fit that category. I think most people are more aware of their idolatry than we think they are. In fact, about 10 years ago, I, I heard an interview by Tom Brady. Um, any Patriot fans in the room? Anybody? Okay, I see a couple hands. Bandwagoners. Yeah. So after he won his third championship about 10 years ago, he was 24, I think, when he won his first one. And so he won, like, I think one, then he missed a year, then he won two more. He won three out of four years, his first few years in the league. So he's the envy of all NFL QBs as far as championships go. And he was being interviewed after his third championship, and he said this. He said, you know, I sit here, and I've won all these things already, and I have to ask the question, like, is this it? Is this all there is? And this is a non-believer who's acknowledging there's just something kind of missing from this thing that we're all a part of. Because you and I, we desire worship. We desire worship. And if we don't worship Jesus, we'll worship something else. We desire worship. If we don't worship Christ, we'll find something else to worship. 
I've also been captivated by this quote by a fashion designer named Mona Lee, and she says this, I've always had more faith in fashion than in God. I believe that the right clothes could make me perfect. I still do. I was driven by the belief that the right garment could save me. Someone who's not even a believer is using words like faith, perfect, belief, save. I mean, this is salvation language. I mean, she's basically admitting that there is something that I have that I am ascribing a God-like status to. And she even says, I, I put more faith in fashion than in God. Now, we all struggle with idolatry, but none of us are going to say, yes, I'm putting my faith in fashion, or I'm putting my faith in sports, or I'm putting my faith, and she's using the word faith. I'm putting my faith in fashion. I'm counting on faith more so than I am God. She's not messing around. She is not beating around the bush. She is admitting there's a God-like ultimate nature that fashion plays in her life. I think people are more aware of their idolatry than we think they are. And then thirdly, sharing the gospel, we have to appeal to God's common grace. We have to appeal to God's common grace. Common grace is different than grace for salvation. Common grace is the idea that God gives good things even to the unbeliever. God gives good things even to the unbeliever. And so in verse 17, we see where Paul says, For he, meaning God, did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, my in-laws, they live in Fort Worth, and whenever we drive to see them, I'm always, the most boring part of the drive is after Hillsborough, between there and Fort Worth. It's really flat and barren. And there's some crops, though. And so I look out, out of the window of my car, and I'll just think about, you know, it's really amazing how all this works together. It's really amazing that God has this system in place where water comes up out of the ocean, but leaves the salt behind, creates clouds. Those crowds transport thousands of miles. And once they reach a certain level of fullness, they dump out onto the earth, watering everything. I mean, we take it for granted, but if you know, if you really think about this, this is a miraculous process that God has set up, isn't it? So Paul is alluding to God's creation. He's alluding to this idea that look at what God has done. God has given you rains. And the idea of common grace is that God allows rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He allows his rain to fall on anyone and everyone. Everyone's a recipient of God's common grace. And it's not just that. We see it elsewhere as well. In this verse 17, he says, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Ever wonder why God makes food taste so good? Like seriously, ever had that thought? Like why does God make food taste so good? I went to Miller's Barbecue on Friday evening. Any fans out there? I love brisket. I'm from the East Coast. I didn't know what that was until I came to Texas. But I love those. You guys are going to go to lunch today. You're going to have something for lunch that you're going to like, hopefully. And as those flavors burst forth in your mouth, I mean, who do you think put those there? I mean, God did not have to put those flavors in there, did he? They don't add any nutritional value to what you're eating. But it says here that we actually get 
We get gladness and joy from the things that God has given us. And so these things are a gift from God. People say things like, how can there be a God? How do we explain all this suffering in the world? But no one ever asked the question, how do we explain all this pleasure? No one ever asked the question, how do we explain all this provision? No one's asking that question. We just take all of it for granted. And so we don't notice it because we always have it. And so Paul is trying to appeal to these three things with these people. He's trying to let them know he's got to start where they are. There's one God. He also says he's trying to help them see their idolatry, but he's also helping them see the goodness of God in his common grace in hopes that they'll come to the rest of the grace in Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, Paul doesn't have a chance to finish his sermon because of what happens in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. Look at verse 19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So in Lystra, Paul gets stoned. And I don't mean in the California kind of way. There's really two ways to get stoned. One of them causes pain. The other relieves pain. This is the kind that actually causes pain. And so these Jews come all the way to Lystra. They come miles and miles and miles. That is some serious hate. They travel there to turn this crowd against Paul and Barnabas. This crowd is fickle. So first they want to worship him. Then they try to kill him. And you can imagine Paul's thoughts. Like, can't we find some middle ground here in the middle, right? And so look with me at at verse 20. But when the disciples gathered about him, watch this. He He rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. So they beat Paul. They stoned Paul within an inch of his life. And the next day, first he gets up and walks back into the city, the same city that tried to kill him. And then what does he do? The next day, he travels 60 miles on foot. So at this point in the story, like if you were the observer or his friend, wouldn't you say, Paul, I think you deserve a pass. I think you get to take a day off, right? But what do we see? Look at verse 21. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city, meaning Derby, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul, after almost getting killed, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He goes back into Lystra, the place where he almost lost his life. And then he decides to travel to Derby. Then he goes back to Lystra again. He follows the route that he came because he could have easily left Derby and gone back to Antioch of Syria. That was the shortest route. But he goes back the way he came. He takes the long way home. Paul takes the long way home because you'll see throughout this whole chapter in all of Acts, that men like Paul, men like Barnabas, they will do anything for the gospel. 
They will do anything for the gospel. This is a theme we see throughout this entire chapter and also through this book. Just in this one chapter, they've been rejected, threatened to be killed, almost murdered, all for the sake of the gospel. And here's where this really convicted me, and I'm sure it convicts you, is that we have difficulty crossing the street. We have difficulty meeting someone in our neighborhood in hopes we can share the gospel with them. We're afraid to say anything at the office because we're afraid it's going to make things awkward. But the question is, did anybody pick up any rocks? Anybody try to kill you? And so we look in this, in this story and we see Paul and Barnabas are willing to do anything for the gospel. And this, is, this chapter is just a small snapshot of what happened to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, don't, go, don't turn there, just listen. But Paul lists out his sufferings that he encountered throughout his entire ministry. And he says that he was imprisoned. He says countless beatings. He lost count. There were so many. Five times. So you guys have seen the Passion, the movie The Passion. You know what happened to Jesus. You've seen it. It's brutal. What happened to Christ one time? 39 lashes. What happened to Christ one time happened to Paul five times. Imagine the scars on Paul's back. Beaten with rods three times. Can you imagine that? Beaten with rods three times. Shipwreck three times. If you and I are on one shipwreck, are we getting back on a boat? Shipwreck three times. Floating at sea, danger from robbers, danger from Jews, so danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from false Christians, so people that he thinks are Christians but really aren't, out to get him, danger from false Christians, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. And then watch how he ends this list. Watch. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If all that happened to us, are we concerned about the churches? Are we concerned about the body of Christ if all that's happening to us? Most likely not. But Paul was willing to do anything for the gospel. Anything for the gospel. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul refers back to this laundry list of things that I just mentioned to you. And you know what he calls it? He calls it a light and momentary affliction. So how is it that Paul is able to see these kinds of sufferings and persecution and call it a light and momentary affliction? Here's how. He can say that because of the cross. He can say it because of the cross. Because of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, this is what gives Paul the ability to see all suffering in light of the cross. Because even if they kill you, it's not the end. What's the worst that can happen to you? They kill you and you're with Jesus? Paul's able to say that because he sees all of his suffering, all of his persecution with the cross and Christ's resurrection in mind. This is how he views all of those things. And so 
I know when you hear a message like this, for myself and for you, we, we tend to think, all right, well, I've got to go be more bold. I've got to do what Paul and Barnabas, and be more bold. And, and we just try to sort of slap some more boldness onto our life. But I want to remind you this morning that you can't approach this kind of thing by just sort of putting it onto the side of your life. You've got to understand that the only way, when, when you believe the gospel, when you truly believe the gospel, whether you're a believer currently or not yet a believer, that when you believe the gospel, put your faith and trust in Christ's finished work on the cross, that is the only way that you and I can do anything for the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God that um, loves us the way that you do. We thank you for being a God who gives us the freedom and the power to handle suffering, persecution, for our faith. We also thank you that even though it's not what our flesh wants, we thank you that sometimes suffering is what propels the gospel forward to a different place, different people. We thank you that um, you're a gracious God that loves us the way that you do unconditionally. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.